Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase. Uh, this is your host, Josh Rosenberg. Thanks for joining me. I'm really psyched to be here and psyched to have you for this episode. Um, like I've said, uh, there's a number of different ways you can get involved with the Roadcase community. I'd love to hear from you on email. Uh, I love getting those emails. Um, it's uh, info at roadcasepod.com. Um, you can also talk to me through the socials, uh, Instagram, uh, and we're still on Twitter. We haven't been banned yet. Uh, Twitter and um, Facebook. We've got also a YouTube channel, Roadcase Podcast, and you can join the party uh, over at Patreon and support this podcast in a number of different ways. And we're going to have some exclusive content over there at Patreon, and there's some goodies there. I talk a little bit more about the episodes, uh, etc. And you can uh, uh, you can check that out at Patreon.com/RoadcasePod, and of course. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And uh, please, while you're there, if you are so inclined, that would be uh, so cool and awesome if you could rate uh, this podcast. Uh, you know, the top rating is always preferred, but, you know, uh, we can take it. Um, but if you'd like to leave a review, that would be awesome as well. So I'm really excited to have George Murphy on Roadcase today. Uh, George Murphy runs a company called Planet 10 that focuses on graphics and motion graphics and tour visuals. And George has worked with Journey and with Tom Petty uh, on Tom's uh, 40th anniversary tour in 2017, which, of course, sadly became Tom's last tour. Um, but George tells a story of how he got connected with those two bands, which is interesting in and of itself. And to hear George talk about it, uh, he came from very scrappy beginnings and uh, really kind of threw his hat into the ring uh, with Journey and with Petty and um, had met a couple key individuals along the way, met the technical director of Petty who worked for Journey. So he took advantage of being in the right place at the right time, for sure. Um, but he is extremely um, great, grateful and humble um, f about his experiences with Tom Petty. Um, it's really interesting to hear him talk about uh, how he positioned himself in that organization, what kind of work goes uh, into developing tour visuals and what that looks like to work with the band. Uh, he had this extraordinary experience of going down at deep into the photo archives of the band to provide visuals, which is which is interesting as well. Um, he worked closely with the band at their rehearsal hall shortly prior to the 2017 tour, and those are really interesting stories to hear. So we'll get a bunch of that great information from George. Um, currently, he's working with uh, band uh, Low Cut Connie, whom I really love, uh, out of Philadelphia, and he's working um, directly with a, uh, a venue in Wilmington, Delaware, Guild Hall, uh, to create live shows, one of which was for David Bromberg's 75th anniversary. And like I said, he's doing some online streaming production and other kinds of graphics.
graphics and technical assistance with Low Cut Connie out of Philadelphia. George is a really articulate and um, quite verbose uh, individual. George uh, uh, would self-admittedly cop to that. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's an intriguing look into what it takes to bring those amazing uh, visuals in in huge rock, live rock shows uh, out into like stadiums and huge arenas, etc. So uh, we'll hear a lot about that. I really enjoyed talking with George. I want to thank all of you for joining me on Roadcase for this great episode. And here we go. Okay, George. Hey, good to have you with me. Thanks for joining me. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm doing very well, you know, uh, adapting to, uh, uh, you know, a weird post-holiday season here in Philadelphia, but uh, hanging in there and uh, stoked for what 2021 might bring for us here. Yeah. So you're joining us from Philly. So what's that kind of music scene like these days in terms of uh, uh, venues, opening, independent venues, closing? What are you kind of seeing from your perspective? We lost one of our bright shining stars here in Philly, which was Boot and Saddle. I think that's the only real major casualty, but that was a, a beloved small house, uh, about 200 seater or less, maybe 150. And when I say yeah. seater, I mean standing room only. Um, yeah, yeah, standard. <laughs> yeah, I was there on the uh, for one of their. I was there for their very first show and and for their one of their last shows as well too. So it was really heartbreaking to see that happen. Uh, yeah. But you know, um, I'm I'm a lot of the venues that we work closely with uh, have been really fortunate to be able to weather the storm, and you know, it seems like we're going to come out on the other side. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a very it's a very bizarre time. Yeah, yeah, it's a bizarre for everybody. There appears to be kind of a very very faint light at the end of the tunnel. But um, can you explain a little bit what your company does, Planet Ten, and kind of what you're mostly involved with right now? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Planet 10 um, is a partnership that my brother and I have had for the past 10 years. Uh, we grew up together um, in suburban Delaware, playing in bands in our parents' basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and him, you know, he's 10 years older than me. So sneaking me as a, a teenager or younger into, uh, into bars to play guitar in his band, he played drums. So, um, you know, we had this very natural, uh, I guess, collaboration from an early age, uh, centered around the things that we loved consuming together. So movies and TV and music. And, um, you know, when I was in college, he had started working, um, in, in the video field and doing a lot of animation. And we were working with a, uh, well, he was working with a restaurant group out in Las Vegas and was in right. need of just some extra, help um on the design side and and i had uh developed a really early interest in design um early photoshop um and um i wound up kind of coming into the fold with him as an intern um but you know doing a little bit of everything here and there and as i finished up school we sort of got to a point with the work that we were doing out um in in you know we were working from delaware still but working a lot in, in the vegas restaurant scene and uh, the opportunity just kind of presented itself for us to to start a little creative studio, and uh, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we did. You know, we uh, we just basically um, put our heads together and said, "Well, we don't know exactly what it is that we're going to do, 
but um, we're just going to start seeing what kind of projects we can get. Uh, and he had this focus at the time he was really focused again on, on video and animation. And I was a little bit more design focused uh, and mm. dabbled a little bit in web. And, you know, we started out just kind of working with some nonprofits and, um, but pretty quickly got into helping out some theaters. Um, we worked with the University of Delaware uh, and their professional theater training program um, to do some interactive video content for some of their shows where, you know, we do multi-projector arrays for backdrops for a show or, you know, some pre-taped components that would get fed into some productions. Um, and, and, you know, I should also mention that we both grew up doing theater together. So there was this very... Um, we we just very quickly early on in, in the company realized that we were happiest when we were working with creative arts professionals um, and organizations, right. and uh, and yeah, and and then we uh, we quickly moved into the Wilmington Delaware music scene and, and helping to kind of revitalize the independent uh, music scene there a little bit. Um, at the time, twenty ten or so. 2011, um, the music scene in Delaware was mostly cover bands. Um, yeah. The independent, um, you know, self-writing, self-song promote, uh, performing uh, musicians were really having a hard time getting shows. Um, and we were in the right place at the right time to work with a couple of uh, promoters in the area to help to build some non-traditional opportunities for bands to perform. Um, and, uh, we did this, uh, event called the, the Wilmo rock circus there in Wilmington, where we had 10 bands on two stages, um, in one evening, um, in literally, uh, it was a, a strip mall. Um, and you know, it was, it's, it's funny because that's, like, that's it, it's such a, it was such a small niche of a thing, but, uh, we, we had, uh, we did some projected visuals for that and, and long story short, you know, doing these little, sort of small potatoes operations, um, you know, grew to us getting a little bit of notice. And uh, before we knew it, we started getting some interest from some bigger bands um, mm -hmm. to do these sort of tour visuals, as they call them, um, which right. is basically the ambient video backdrops that you see behind bands. So, uh, yeah, we basically took... Um, we, we took a very small opportunity and lucked into uh, other people kind of seeing it and, and having some interest in what we were doing. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, just going with what you love to do, right? And then kind of seeing where that goes and making the best of it. And I love how you were, um, you know, you you started small and kind of just because you were doing what you loved, got some interest. Who did you get interest from and how did that kind of morph into, uh, into getting attention, like you said, from, was that from bigger enterprises or from theaters or... Like, how did that ball yeah. sort of get rolling in that early time? And I saw you were kind of laughing at that. Did that sort of hit a nerve with you or sort of ring a bell or something? The, the thing about it is it's we're a very scrappy little endeavor. Um, and uh -huh. part of part of the magic of, of being outside of one of the major metropolitans, like being from Delaware, it's it's always really interesting when you start to say, like, how did we manage, like, getting out of our little bubble? Uh, the we so we had done some theatrical project, uh, projections for uh, a children's theater in Wilmington, and it just so happened that one of the dads in the production was the lighting designer for Journey. Um, and okay. uh, wow, <laughs> talk about an amazing connection, right? Like, it just so happens that 
Yeah. And my, my brother happened to be in the production and uh, just, you know, sort of chatted, chatted them up and, and right. struck up a fast friendship. And uh, he asked us to submit a couple of designs for the, the show that year. And that was probably 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. Um, so we sold a couple of visuals for that tour um, alongside, as, as we often have found ourselves over the years, alongside of a much larger established uh, production company that was doing a lot of the work for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, they dug the work that we did. And, uh, you know, it, it was not like, oh, all of a sudden, this is our business model. Um, honestly, the work that's now sort of our bread and butter was kind of like the oh, this, these are the fun projects throughout the year that don't really make any money, uh, but they're the most fun to do. And, yeah. you know, that happened uh, again a couple more times. And then um, we almost wound up doing their 2016 tour, uh, but it didn't pan out for whatever reason. So we we kind of had written off, like, actually, t- to be honest, you know, we <laughs> we almost... There was a conversation in, in December of 2016, uh, or maybe it was November of 2016, of like, do we? What are we doing here? Uh, are we? Are we just treading water? Are we? Is this the right path to sort of be on? It didn't really feel like we were gonna get an opportunity to step outside of uh, the sort of, you know, uh, piecemeal client base that we'd established at that point. And mm-hmm. then out of the blue. Um, we got a call from this gentleman by the name of Kevin Cassidy, who at the time was the technical director for uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And he had seen, he was worked on the journey crew um, and had seen our work and was interested in having us put together a couple of concepts that we could, they could put in front of the band. Um, so, you know, literally like we had this conversation over lunch with our partners saying like, Oh, what are we doing? And then we came back to that email of like, do you want to submit some ideas for this? And, uh, and we put a couple of ideas in there and, um, thought nothing. It was like, well, you know what, let's just lob this over the fence and see what, see what happens. Meanwhile, I was like kind of doing some research into like, how do you close an LLC? How do we, what's next on the, on the plan for us? Um, but then, uh, you know, we, we heard back pretty quickly that, um, you know, Tom really dug our work and, um, that they wanted us to come on board to, to do the majority of the work for, uh, for their 40th anniversary tour. Wow. um, Which is about as cool of a phone call as a person can get. Yeah. Wow. So, well, that I I was kind of wondering, you brought up Tom Petty. Um, well with the journey thing, like I was, we'll come back to Tom Petty in a sec, but to kind of Mm -hmm. get how you got to Tom Petty, right? Because whether it's Kevin Cassidy was working for, uh, or, or noticed you, your work with journey, what exactly did you do with journey and how did that, uh, kind of come about and what did that look like? Sure. Yeah. So we had did, uh, we did a, we did usually the way that, um, visuals work is that it's based off of a single song and you've got any number of songs that are kind of rotating in and out of a set, um, Mm -hmm. with the band. And I think on that journey tour, we did, uh, visuals for like three or four songs. Faithfully was one of them. Um, it was a really ambitious project and then we fan sourced a bunch of photos from, you know, their, their massive fan base. Um, and we built this little photo montage that kind of celebrated fandom over the years. Um, I think that was the piece that kind of caught Kevin's eye. 
And yeah, yeah, you know, it's 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 really interesting because it's not quite like making a music video necessarily where you're really sort of going beat by beat, especially for bands um, that don't like play along to a click track where you can't time everything out. So it's a pretty, it's this interesting blend between a music video and, you know, a traditional scenic design for like a musical where you want to leave some breathing room on the stage. You don't want to distract from the band, but you want something that's sort of just like pulls the whole scene together and, you know, keeps fans engaged in the show and, and gives them, especially in this day and age, gives them something to take a picture of with their phone, you know? So if they're not using a click track or something that keeps you also kind of on the timing schedule of the song, then how does that, how do you think about things like that? That seems to be very kind of cue specific would be photos or not, or it's just not cue specific enough to be tight, but also to go along with the, the, the themes in the songs at the moment. Am I on the right track and how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really atmospheric video and this actually Uh not to hop too far back, but, uh, one of the things that I glossed over a little bit, so I mentioned that we worked a little bit in, in the restaurant business in Las Vegas. I should elaborate a little bit more. Um, so in the mid-2000s, like 20, 2006, 2007, uh, my brother was in this unique position of kind of pioneering atmospheric video for flair bartending competitions in Las Vegas. For I'm, I'm sorry? With flair bartending. Um, so flair bartending was like, if you ever see footage of uh, bartenders where they're, you know, throwing bottles and mixing drinks, but doing a lot of sort of um, juggling and performance art along with just simply making cocktails. Very popular overseas, uh, <laughs> okay. Europe. Um, but in, in LA, there was sort of this bus, or sorry, in, in Las Vegas at the time, there was this bustling industry. Um, and it, it, I mean, there were huge competitions with big money prizes. And, um, you know, one of the restaurants we were working with, one of the fixtures of their, uh, of the, um, I guess of their whole business model was their party bar, uh, which was located across the casino from where a Cirque du Soleil show let out. So people would kind of come in after the show let out right to see this flair bartending showcase that was happening, uh, where, you know, there were sort of three sides of the bar and the idea was whichever the loudest side of the bar was got free shots. So you had these world-class flair bartenders that are just working there. And one of the ideas that was kind of where we kind of came into the fold on this was, um, creating entrance videos for each of those bartenders where kind of like if you watch like pro wrestling as they're coming down the ramp to the ring, you see this video package play. So we, we built those for each of the bartenders. Um, and and really at the time, you know, um, I say we, it was, my brother was doing the majority of the work. Uh, I was just kind of in the right place at the right time to help out, you know, uh, again, because we're multimedia artists, I was like mixing the audio for the, uh, for like the, uh, uh, the entrance music and whatnot. But, but long story short, you know, we, we started doing those videos and doing this sort of flair showcase that would happen every night. And then as that restaurant started to host some of these bigger flair competitions, we got into doing, you know, video backdrops that would kind of play on the TV screens behind the competitors while the competition was going on, you know, ambient video, maybe some countdown clocks, but we got a sense for like, what it would be like to design for for motion backdrops that were there when you needed them to be that supported the energy of what was happening um, but kind of disappeared when you needed them to disappear so Mm -hmm. we learned pretty quickly um, 
a lot of fundamentals about what worked and didn't work in you know a high energy live performance scenario with that content. Um, and when we started doing the tour visuals, that kind of came back around again, as, as you talked about. You know, you want to be able to build um, motion art that you know can roll with the punches of live production. Something is always going to kind of go wrong. Um, you know, timings are going to get messed up. A cue might get missed, whatever. So you're kind of building for each of the songs an atmosphere uh, that, you know, in in a perfect world, if everything goes well, it tells this beautiful visual story that goes along with the performance. If not, it just looks really nice. And, and, you know, the, the person that's running the show can, has enough ammunition in front of them to, to change things up as necessary. So, uh, so that's kind of a long-winded answer of, I guess, how that works a little bit, but, um, it, it's a really unique challenge. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, not, you would never really put the two together, but it's a very interesting kind of correlation in professionally speaking from how to use videos in one atmosphere and how that can be translatable to a different one. So how did that work with, uh, so you broke off from the journey thing. So how did that kind of, uh, align with what you were doing with journey? So, yeah. And, and to kind of talk about, I guess the, what the ecosystem looks like for this particular part of the concert industry. So typically speaking, you're engaging, um, uh, a staging company that's going to have an a or an AV company that's going to come in and do your video walls. Um, you have a lighting designer who's going to be doing the, the actual lighting design and, and kind of figuring out what that's going to be like. Right. The video content tends to live in this gray area between the two where a lot of those servers come preloaded with just like stock content and, um, you know, there's some really great LDs that'll just use that to their advantage and, and kind of treat the back wall as a big fixture. Um, and, you know, that that works great. But some bands like Journey and, and technical directors, like uh, I should mention uh, Deuce, uh, Kevin Christopher, the lighting designer for Journey, um, who has become a, a wonderful friend. Um, he, you know, he was never really com- uh, just d- didn't like to be complacent when it came to just using the stuff that's off the shelf uh, and, and was longing for the opportunity to use those video walls as a chance to tell some story. So, you know, again, it's like sometimes the video content is either an added value that the production company is kind of throwing in where they have a library of content um, that they're just, you know, kind of handing off to the lighting designer to throw in where necessary. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where you've got bands that really grasp this and they're doing, you know, cinematography and high-end animation and they're telling you know, a whole narrative story that's literally beat by beat to a click track. Um, so that's, those are like the two main worlds. And then I'll also mention mm-hmm. there's this third world, which is huge overseas, really all around the world, which is sort of the, um, the ambient um, abstract world that dates back to, uh, to, you know, oil shows in the sixties um, during, you know, psychedelic bands. Uh, and, and that oh, carries right, over, right. I think really into the jam, both uh, it's kind of forked off into the jam band scene and then the electronic yeah, music scene. Yeah. Those are the two worlds. Joshua where, Light Show or whatever that is. Right. And, and there's a lot of, uh, there's software. What did you, you call, you called that the oil, oil, would they, they would actually put like oils on plates and then have it like on, I don't know what I, I imagine it is. I don't know exactly like an over projector, right? Yeah. Right. Totally. That was exactly fucking it. cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and trust me, we still use those tricks to this day. Uh, but, you know, that being said, you know, you, you've got those three worlds, you know, you've got, um, you know, big touring arena rock bands that are just kind of using what they've got. You've got people that are dedicating budgets to doing this. And then you've got folks that are using, um, 
you know, uh, program tools, uh, abstract content generators, like software plugins, stuff like that, that can generate it. So we were kind of trying to find a niche where, um, we could be creative directors for hire rather than just strictly, you know, animators. When we were working for Journey, it was like, here's, and again, it's no fault to, it's just an example of a type of engagement. It was yeah. kind of like, here's a couple of songs. Um, we're going to just, you know, we need you to do new visuals for these songs. Uh, come up with some concepts. We'll tell you what we like. Again, no different than developing treatments for a music video or for album art or whatever. Right. Uh, but the opportunity that presented ourselves when, when, when the heartbreakers reached out. Well, I had was... one more question about journey though, sure. um, George. Oh, good. So you said that you would, um, uh, that you would, uh, present those visual ideas for a couple different songs. So mm -hmm. would you hand that for, so first, would you hand that off to people that would execute those at the shows or would you actually execute those for those particular songs at the show? Sure. Yeah. So what we would basically do uh, in those situations, I guess I started talking about this and didn't finish the thought. So um, th typically speaking, again, there's two scenarios. Some bands will tour with, uh, you know, a, a video director that's doing all the in-house IMAG footage uh, that's also programming the video content for the show. The more mm -hmm. common scenario is that that's the lighting director and it's built right into the lighting direct the lighting console. So um, that was the case with Journey. That was the case with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, you know, I think that, um, generally speaking, it's kind of like we develop the content, hand it off, put it on a server, and then it just becomes a part of the run of show. You know, we do our work from our little spot out in Delaware and then the content goes in towards the world. Um, gotcha. so yeah, it's, we'll, we'll come back to that later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. But it's like a plug and play kind of thing for those particular songs. Yeah. So basically, you know, we would just have, it would be like little special features and, you know, again, um, with oh, journey. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, and it's also like some of the content would get recycled from year to year. So it would kind of be like our, <laughs> because we were doing custom work, you know, as opposed to just pulling stuff off the shelf, it was a little bit more like we, well, let's just focus our budget this year on redoing a couple of songs. Um, and that's something that has gone on and, and we'll, we'll circle back to journey because that story loops back around again in a minute. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like, um, getting our toe into the water of doing a few of those visuals, mm -hmm. getting to go and see that for the first time because we weren't out on the road experiencing it, uh, was so surreal. I remember seeing, uh, the journey visuals for the first time, uh, the summer after we had done, I maybe it was the same summer we did the first visuals for faithfully, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a real crazy moment for sure to see that because, you know, surreal, you, you kind of huh? put the yeah, you, you put stuff on up into the cloud and then you hand off the files and then, you know, magic happens. Right. But wasn't, but weren't you engaged with the lighting team there before they went on the road? I mean, weren't, but yeah, but so you I saw that, how it fit into the overall show, but you're saying like to see that come back and like to see the particular show or did you go personally or did you see video of it or how, how did that, how did that particular logistically uh, come go down? Well, that's what kind of shifted, you know, when we were doing the first couple projects like this, we were really just kind of, you know, we were designing to the studio recording of the song, or maybe, you know, occasionally we would get like, here's footage from the last time the band toured the song. So you could sort of see where the lighting cues are. So the content can go along with it, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then when we saw it, we could kind of put two and two together and that just made it easier for us the next time we went back to it. But that's actually a perfect kind of moment to, to pivot and talk a little bit about the petty opportunity. Yeah, you sure. Know, we, we were contacted. We the the challenge. There were a number of challenges with um, the engagement for for uh, the the 40th anniversary tour. Two things. 
first and foremost, the timeline was really compressed. You know, we we basically had about, I think from when the contract was signed to when tour rehearsals was starting was about 12 weeks, maybe 10. But, you know, as I mentioned, th- this was the first opportunity where we could really go in and say, we want to take the lead on developing the content for the tour. Um, we were collaborating with another uh larger and more notable production company that was con- going to contribute a couple of bigger assets. Our goal was to um, to focus on doing the volume. Um, the, the, mm-hmm. the second tricky part of this was that, you know, the band was typically known for pl- touring without a real set list. They were, they had like, you know, obviously hundreds of songs that they could pull from. And it wasn't really until two weeks, three weeks before the start of tour until there was like a formal set list that could be spoken of. So talk about really? taking some shots in the dark. So we basically, you know, we, we came on board and the first thing I said was we have, we have almost no time to do this. I think the only way that this is going to work is if we can build into our engagement to come to tour rehearsals and help to program and build the show on site with the band while they're putting this together, mostly just because we didn't know what the songs were going to be. Then the journey model was just a couple of songs. This was an entirely different model. This was about providing visuals for the whole show. Okay. Yeah. And this is, and this is the moment where we were kind of making this pivot, which we'd been longing to do from just being, you know, much like if somebody came to us and said, Hey, make a little animated sequence for our movie or for our TV, whatever, you know, this was an opportunity to say, let's work with the production team and build the, the look and feel and the atmosphere for the whole show. So, you know, I basically said, let us do this. They were, they were gung ho. They, they let us come and do this. And uh, the first thing that I got the opportunity to do that was so surreal because this was the 40th anniversary tour, they wanted to have, a little bit of nostalgia involved. Um, you know, Tom was really focused on not rehashing the past, but knew that this was a tour where it was important to tip his hat to the road that's been traveled. So uh, I convinced them to get me out to LA and let me go through their archives. Um, the archives were literally a, a room full of cardboard boxes in Tom's manager's uh, offices um, in, wow. in studio, or I guess, uh, yeah, Studio City. Um, and I got to work with, uh, Tom's longtime secretary, um, who was just an absolute dream. Uh, Mary, um, she had an encyclopedic knowledge of what this giant pile of boxes looked like and where everything lived. Um, and, you know, I was able to kind of sift through that and pull a bunch of really spectacular archival material, um, that we were able to sort of pepper in throughout the the show. But, you Mm. know, basically, um, it was a really crazy run up to that because I, you know, we, we threw a couple of concepts, well, a couple, I'd say we probably threw half a dozen or so concepts based off of songs that we knew were going to be included in the show. Yeah. Um, and the really cool thing, I, I, I guess I failed to mention, when we first started talking about the, the petty engagement, the way that we landed the project was, um, we did a, a, a spec visual for presentation, um, for one of Tom's favorite songs, from his most recent new record, which was um, Forgotten Man off of uh, Hypnotic Eye. And it was a song that, you know, I think was really well-timed in that it speaks about the alienation that a lot of people in the country were were feeling. Um, And, you know, I got to hand it to Ken, to my brother. He did a a spectacular job of putting together um, visuals that matched up with the song great. And, And that was what 
spoke to Tom when he saw it. You know, I think a lot of people, I, I have no idea how many other companies were kind of submitting concepts, but um, I think that the the choice of using that particular song is something that Tom was so impassioned about and, and giving a very tastefully pointed message about the changes that were necessary. Um, it was a really cool, it was very cool to hear that that was the reason why he, he went with us for this. So, Interesting. so you know, he was, um, he was involved personally in this particular part of it before you guys got, got the green light. It was very strange. Yes. Because we you know we were passing stuff through, uh, through Kevin Cassidy and, and he was kind of sharing it, um, with, with Tom and, and Dana, his wife. Um, and you know, we would get, we got very little feedback, which was really scary. You know, um, I yeah. think that, <laughs> Uh, our collaborators on the project, um, the other production company we were working with, was receiving a lot of feedback based off of things that he was not necessarily gravitating towards in some of what they had submitted. So we were a little bit nervous that we weren't, again, getting any notes. Um, but it turned out that apparently he was just digging what we, we put together. So long story short, you know, we 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 wound up going out and uh, we worked alongside uh, of of Kevin Cassidy. Um, and Stan, uh, who, uh, Stan, um, pardon me one second. <laughs> uh, I need to do a quick fact check here. Okay. So while you did that uh, live fact checking here on road case, um, yeah. what time frame was this and like how many months or, uh, before the tour started or a year or however long that was? So no, it, it's so funny you would say that. All right, so there we go. Uh, so we this was in um, April of 2017. The tour okay. opened on April 20th uh, in Oklahoma City. So this was April 20th um, of right after April of 2017. So we were out in LA beginning on March 30th. So basically, the band was set to be in the studio or in their rehearsal space for a few days. Um, kind of preparing some songs. They would pass along whatever notes we could get from them. And we had one week where we were working alongside of Stan Green, who was their lighting designer. Uh, Stan unfortunately passed away uh, in the end of 2017 after mm. a, a, a battle with some some long-term illness. Um, but, you know, Stan, uh, their their lighting designer, and, and Kevin Cassidy kind of were our, um, our direct reports, if you will, on the project for that first week where we basically just kind of came in there and, you know, the way that those guys like to work, especially Stan, was he would kind of come in at like 10 in the morning and work until two or three in the morning and rinse, repeat as he would just program through the show, going over the cues from the previous year, checking all the fixtures, doing all of this. So we basically were in there with him for 10 days straight leading up to the band's arrival, um, just doing the best that we could to get as much content as we possibly could get built, built. Um, you know, pulling from archival materials. Before that, how how yeah. long of a when did you start talking to you go into his office and talking to the secretary? Like how what time frame was that? Like how earlier was that? Oh, good, good question. So uh we signed the contract on February first. So I was in LA for the first couple days of February. I literally flew gotcha. out like two days gotcha. after the initial uh conversation was had. Um yeah, and and that was when had Kevin originally brought that up to you? I mean, I think they first reached out to us in the beginning of December, so we didn't hear until gotcha. after I think it was, I mean, middle of January. Uh, right. There was that okay. window of time where we had sent stuff out and heard some positive feedback, but had no confirmations. Yeah, so you were on the edge of your edge of your seat for all of January of 2017. 
Well, I was going to say, to be honest, we kind of forgot about it um, before we heard back from him again, uh-huh. because, um, you know, it's just, just the way that uh, we just really didn't think we had a fighting chance for us to be selected as these tiny, uh, you know, as we like to call it, little shit kickers from Delaware that, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the little engine that could up against um, some of the biggest production designers in the world. So, yeah, so so we had this really compressed timeline. Uh, as I mentioned, the best that we could kind of do in preparation was to try to put together some assets for the songs that we knew were going to be a part of the set. Um, you know, and we also knew that we had to strike a balance between um, you know, some songs that were more ambient and others that were going to be a little bit more storytelling where we knew that uh, and, and I should also mention that again, the Heartbreakers not playing to a click track, they did have enough consistency in their performance that we could at least sort of break songs into sections and say, here's a verse look, here's a chorus look, here's a second verse look, here's another chorus, bridge, guitar solo, and then basically build the content in such a way where it wasn't so meticulously timed that if something was off, it wouldn't work. And these still were visuals that were projected on the screens. It wasn't, you weren't the lighting guy on the spotlight that was following Tom around the stage or whatever this was to tell me exactly what you were dealing with. I got a sense that you were pulling some archival content, but um, what else were you using during that show and what did it kind of look like? Yeah. So, so we, you know, we, we shot some stuff, we sourced some stock imagery that we then took and affected, you know, we, we basically just pulled, we made a whole pop culture blender of, um, you know, sort of some moments that were a little bit more on the nose to match up with what was going on. And sometimes you just wanted to have a little bit of either psychedelia or abstract madness to kind of have, depending on the, uh, what's happening, uh, in the course of the, the show. So, you know, we, we just spent a lot of time listening to the material and, you know, looking at the lighting cues and going back and forth with Stan and, and Kevin to try to figure out what the tone was going to be for each of these. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so basically we programmed like Mad Men creating this content for 10 days straight, um, you know, work in these 20 hour days. And then, you know, it, it, we had five days where the band was in there rehearsing and, you know, the coolest moment, um, I should mention on my first trip out to LA, Kevin was able to get me to uh, the Heartbreakers Clubhouse, which is a very special place. Um, you, you've probably seen photos of it in a lot of the pictures of Tom and the guys where, you know, it's where they would uh, practice and where they recorded their last three or four records. Right. Um, you know, and this was an L- it's this a was really, LA. really special you me, place. You told me the secretary's office was in Studio City? Yeah, that's right. So this is up in the Valley. I actually and, grew up there. Wow. In Studio City? I did. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I so we stayed at the. I don't, you know, the uh, is it the Sportsman's Lodge? Does that sound right? The Sportsman's Lodge, yeah. You mean where my grandparents used to stay in the 1970s when they drive down from the Bay Area and visit me? <laughs> the, that Sportsman's Lodge, you'll yeah, appreciate I, this. I happen know. to know it uh, somewhat well. <laughs> the Sportsman's Lodge is very well connected to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's oh, where the crew would always stay when they were in town for many, many years, yeah. and uh, you know it's it's funny you know i was staying there uh when i was out there for that first trip and um i stumbled you know I, kevin cassidy had mentioned to me that how, how that had been sort of tied to uh the legacy if you will of the heartbreakers over the years and uh, i tracked down an old matchbook while i was out there from from the sportsman's lodge probably from like the early 70s maybe 
the late 70s. Yeah. Um, and it, it wound up in a collage for a piece that didn't wind up getting used in the show. Um, I'll, I'll circle back to that point in a second because I would um, love I would you know, love to the, see that piece the other of visual trip. from it for sure. I mean, that's like just such I, a legacy, I, like I, I Sinatra will. Martin kind of 1970s sort of place oh that's God. just in the middle of the valley on Ventura Boulevard. I mean, you know. Which he references on a lot of his songs anyway, right? Yeah. Ventura Boulevard and all that kind of valley stuff. So, Oh, totally. Well, that was part of, part of the magic of that first trip was, you know, I'd spent a little bit of time in Los Angeles, but it was my first solo trip to L.A. Oh, that's I went cool. out there, I rented the car, and I just drove around, and I got to know the area. And it really, you know, um, it, it was a very special moment in time, too, where, you know, these guys are getting ready to reflect back on 40 years of this. Um, you know, this was our, our, we were the new guys in the camp, if you will. And and we just had this, it was a really wonderful moment to just kind of get up to speed on things. But, um, what I was going to say about that, that visit while I was there, I was taking reference photos, um, of their, their clubhouse space thinking like, how can we possibly incorporate this? And, And one of the ideas that Kevin Cassidy had had was, is there a way that we can bring the energy of the clubhouse into some of these visuals? So, we landed on the idea of taking one of the photos that I took of the space um, where, you know, the, the, the band had actually been in rehearsals um, for uh, Tom's Tom was honored that year with the music cares person of the year award. Wow. And um, the band. Yeah. So all of their gear was over at a different practice space. It was totally empty, you know, like where the drum set would normally be was just an empty riser. So I took this wide photo of the space and one of the last things that we did before the band came into rehearsals later that that spring was we decided that, that would be a perfect image to have up on the video walls when the band walked into rehearsal for the first time. And they just got such a kick out of the fact that it was like we were bringing the clubhouse to, you know, Sony Picture Studios back lot where the rehearsals were happening. And I could, I mean, I could spend two months talking about this. It was such an incredible experience um, and, and a lot of wonderful stuff happened. But suffice it to say, you know, we, those five days were crazy. You know, the set list came together. We were building content. You know, the band would come in from rehearse for a few hours and then we'd just work all night again to build new content for the show. Um, it was a really, really wild experience. Did they ever sneak a song into the set during the tour that you weren't familiar with and had to like improvise? So the way that we, the two things happened, one of which is that the set list actually wound up staying pretty much the same. Um, they mm-hmm. decided to do that because they had uh, Charlie and Hattie Webb, uh, the Webb sisters, um, who were phenomenal vocalists um, that joined the band for this tour. Uh, they were Leonard Cohen's uh, backing vocalists for many, many years prior to his death. And uh, Tom had seen them and insisted upon getting them for this tour, uh, which was really, really special. But, you know, that wound up really helping us out because it meant that they wanted to lock into a more consistent set list. So there were like three or four, five songs maybe over the course of the tour that would change out here and there. Um, but, you know, and we built a, a special folder of abstract visuals that Stan could use when that happened oh, okay. uh, to throw some stuff in there. And there's also another another variable that I would mention um, with this type of work is how do you incorporate the iMag footage, the house cameras that travel with the band that are filming the band that kind of gets mixed into those uh, video walls as well, too. The cool thing that we did was we incorporated we incorporated some of that into the visual. So like if Mike Campbell was playing guitar solo, we basically left a hole, so to speak, so that they could pipe that iMag in there. And then we'd yeah. either overlay some visuals on top of it or maybe 
you know? So it was a really crazy and surreal experience. Um, you know, we, we had a moment to speak to Tom, uh, part, partway through the rehearsal process, which was the only direct real converse, you know, we, my brother and I got over and called over and introduced to him. And he just basically said, listen, I love what you're doing. Keep on doing it. And, uh, that was enough to just be like, okay, this was all worth it. Uh, <laughs> how much, how, how like before the tour, how much time before the tour was then, did that occur? And- well, so this was all so quick. I mean, this was, that was the, the second to last day of, of, of rehearsals. Um, at yeah. the end of the day, every, usually Tom would kind of come in, rehearse, and then, you know, go on the, the first day, um, our, where we were set up in the back of the house, right by the, um, by the lighting console was just adjacent to an area that they had set up with some couches and coffee service and stuff like that for the band. So they were hanging out like maybe 10 feet away from where we were sitting back there and had no idea who we were by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but Tom had been there on the first day and he actually spilled a cup of coffee and I ran over and handed them some paper towels as if it was the coolest moment of my life. And I was like, that's it. That's my interaction with Tom Petty. That's fine. But no, on on the, on the fourth day of rehearsals, um, at the end of the day, he had stuck around. Everyone kind of thought he had left, but he was still there just, you know, hanging out. And, uh, Stan and, and Kevin went up to talk to him about something and, and we wound up just kind of moseying our way over there and uh, they introduced us to him and, and explained who we were and what we did. And he just, you know, had a, a really nice moment of kind of telling us uh, that he dug what we did. And then we were talking about, there were a few ideas that we had had, one of which was incorporating this older gag from, um, I believe it was the Dogs with Wings tour where he used to have um, the top hat from Don't Come Around Here No More would be in this chest on the stage that would sort of light up and he'd go over and put the hat on. And it's a right. long story, but he, you know, we were, we were to- toying with the idea of filming him doing that, um, w- which is something we ultimately did wind up filming, although not with Tom. I can, uh, we, we wound up using a double for it because he was pretty busy uh, getting yeah. ready for the tour. But, you know, uh, we, he just told us some stories and, and kind of went on his way. But it was such a surreal experience. We're just sitting there like cross-legged on the floor where the band would normally perform, just like hanging out with Tom for a few minutes. Were you a fan of Tom's before you ha- got this gig? You know, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think everyone in America, every warm-blooded person, you know, grows up with, with Petty's music. But I mean, my brother and I were both into his music and, uh, you know, grew up playing his music in, in bands and things like that. But when you work on a project like this, um, it becomes all encompassing. Um, and it's more than just fandom because you're, you're becoming a part of that artist's legacy in this strange yeah. and bizarre way and whatever little role that might be. So, you know, I spent a year of my life with, with, with that band in a way that, you can't you can't do that um uh, in any other it's such a unique opportunity um so yeah we we became fast heavy fans and we also had to you know really familiarize ourselves with his over of music um to yeah. be prepared to build visuals for whatever they decided to put in but you know for the sure. uh the surreal thing the surreal thing that that happened you know we so all of this comes together in the course of this two and a half three month period and then it goes out on the road, um, and we're kind of like, okay, hopefully it goes well. So we're like, you're not on the road with them. That's right. We did not go out on the road. 
we, you know, were a part of it for rehearsals. We saw it through, and then we kind of let our child fly uh, and handed the content over to uh, to Stan Green to run over the course of the tour. Um, but you know, we we got pretty close to seeing what a full show would look like when we were in rehearsals. But you never know until things start really happening um, on the road. So my brother and Did I. Did you were, see shows on that tour? Well, I'll, I'll put it this way: the the first night of the tour, my brother and I were sitting on Periscope, you know, trying to find people that were posting live videos, uh, you know, streaming from the show, and and we, you know, were watching, and then we did that for the first few shows, seeing like, oh, you know, uh, is is everything working right? Oh, they missed a clue, missed a cue here, they missed a cue there. That's all good. Take notes, sending stuff back and forth, and so you know, we we the best that we could to virtually keep an eye on the show, and you know, we would sort of debrief after every couple of shows with the production team, and make adjustments where necessary. That's uh, interesting. I got to see the show for the first time. Yeah, I drove out to Pittsburgh with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, to see the show for the first time and it was so surreal getting to walk into the arena and, and see this come together right i mean did they at least give you good did you sit by the did, were you with this lighting director at the at the show where were you yeah we yeah, yeah. we sat right at the console it was amazing um yeah. we we saw the show seven seven times eight times something like that I, I at least i saw it my brother saw a couple less than i did and i think it's interesting you didn't like go to the first show of the whole tour and like deliver feedback like right at on the fly like i i'm i'm interested in knowing why that didn't occur and what you thought of that hindsight is 2020 i i think there were a number of factors you know my brother uh had a very young daughter at the time uh she was about six months old um when or maybe a year old when this tour, when the tour started and um you know i we we just it was like things were happening so quickly even just the fact that we were able to pull it off the way that we did with tour rehearsals was amazing enough to us well yeah dude i'm not i'm not judging at all on this man i'm just like i i was just curious as to how that went down logistically what that looked like the the reason I, I bring that up is because like I've thought about this a million times since it happened of like why weren't we there why didn't I go to every show on the tour sorry but, to bring you know, it up it dude the, the best... <laughs> no 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 I mean, like I said it's, it's nothing that I haven't thought about we know how the story ends it's not pretty so but the the cool yeah. thing was we we did get to in addition to seeing the show and staying and checking in uh, checking in on it a few times um, you know. Uh, I've got a good Philly story to come back to, but the the coolest part about the whole thing was that Ken and I got to travel out to Los Angeles for two of the last three shows at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, and nice. we got to spend some time, you know, backstage and watching from the house there, and um, you know, so that was like the ultimate culmination of the work that we did. Um, I would imagine such a cool way really to wrap the project. Cool, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will say that the one of the things that happened uh, that you might take interest in is as the show went on, because we were kind of building it as the show went, adding new visuals, you know, sending stuff via Dropbox during the course of the tour, yeah, programming new clips in. Um, one of the things that Tom had um, decided probably about four weeks into the tour. We had um, a very sort of classic treatment for American Girl. It was a lot of like beautiful, diverse women. Um, kind of all mixed together with some America ephemera. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was fine. Um, but it was kind of, it was a bit too much of an afterthought for such an important song. And Tom said, you know, why don't we, why don't we make this more of a portrait of, you know, 
the country that we want this to be. And so, so basically we, we went back and changed the entire concept to something that was a little bit more celebratory. Um, and it sent a really strong positive message. Um, so, but the cool thing was because we changed the concept, we got to shoot some new footage for it and we got to include a few really important people into this montage of, of powerful women that was at the end of it. Uh, our mom was in there. Uh, my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, uh, his, his, his daughter was in there. Our sister was in there. Uh, a few of my friends, it was a really cool moment. And, and, you know, we, my mom didn't know about this and we got to, um, you know, I, we got to bring her to the show in Philly and she got to see it in person. And it was just like such a oh, cool moment. Oh God, that must've been great for her. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, you know, and, and then we came back from, from doing this insane show and, um, and then, you know, like a week and a half later, uh, it was just like the most crushing, crushing situation of, of, of hearing about Tom's passing. And then, as I mentioned earlier, about three months later, uh, Stan Green, who was one of our, you know, we spent so much time in the trenches in, uh, of the tour. And Stan was someone who had uh, been with the Heartbreakers for a long time and uh, just beloved by so many people. And he, poor guy just had a really, really rough year and then, you know, unfortunately lost his battle. And it was just, it was devastating one-two punch. Um, and, you know, the thing about it is you, you, we we were backstage at, at the Hollywood Bowl talking with the team about you know what the Tom was ready to start working on this Wildflowers tour that you may have heard about that was supposed to be happening like he was like let's take a few weeks off and then let's start planning for this uh, you know so we had kind of made our way in and 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 felt like a part of this little family and then uh, you know it's just heartbreaking to see what what happened but uh, but yeah so that that was a year out of our lives that, you know, changed everything about the work that we were doing about the way that we approach creative, the creative process in general. Um, and it was, you know, it was a love letter. to. And in what ways did it change? And, uh, where have you gone since then? That's a good question. So we did, um, it, it's funny. We, we've never, we didn't wind up ever really pivoting our, our business model to being strictly yeah, we're we're very loosely defined in the scope of work that we do, and that it's basically whatever sort of creative endeavors that support um, the the kinds of businesses and and organizations and artists that we can that we like to work with. So mm-hmm. you know, um, we we do everything from music videos to animated visuals for to support songs. We do design for packaging for releases. You know, we still do a lot of work with theaters. Um, we're currently um, working with uh, the presidential transition team right now in Wilmington oh, really? on uh, producing the video content. Yeah, with with uh, with the president elect. So it's a really diverse thing. But the thing that working with Petty in particular taught us was like, you first off, you're if you don't believe that you have the the potential and the ability to do something and that you can pull it off. Uh, you're definitely not going to do it. And uh, if you just keep on keeping on and doing the kind of work that, again, you you yourself would want to consume, you'll find your audience for it. That's kind of what we took away from that whole experience. And there was also the sense, you know, we we lost in, in losing Tom. We also, um, that year, um, the work that we did with Petty got us back in touch with some heroes of ours, this company called house industries. That's ironically enough, also based in Delaware. They're, um, 
a type foundry. They design typefaces and uh, custom typography and lettering. And um, they were around at the beginning of the desktop publishing boom in the 90s, making fonts by hand when everyone else was doing it on a computer. And uh, they did some really remarkable design work, you know, logos for TV Land and um, MTV and and you name it. Um, They were kind of our, our, the people that we looked up to in the creative arts community. I read a book by them um, around the time that we started the business that just flipped my entire that made me crazy enough to believe that we could pull off being a business as a couple of shit kicking kids from from delaware um (laughs) but you know they noticed the work we did with petty we started working with them um and and one of the the partners in the business uh rich wrote who i'd become friendly with um just from the music scene his kid was uh playing in some bands on some shows that we were helping to produce design and, and visuals for um you know we started working very closely with them and we were at that moment of like, we're going to do something really cool together. We don't know what it is. Um, I, I went out to LA with them right, actually right before we were at the, um, uh, in LA with, uh, the heartbreakers the weekend before I had been in San Francisco with these guys, um, for, uh, an event that they were doing with their pal, JJ Abrams, um, of, you know, massive film yeah. notoriety. Um, and, you know, again, I had this conversation right before I left with, with Rich of like, we don't know what we're going to do together, but, you know, he basically just said, you know, you're a part of the, our little family here and we're going to do some cool stuff. Um, you know, so Petty passed um, the first week of October. Rich passed uh, about six weeks later, um, right, right the day after Thanksgiving. Um, it was just like one, two punch. And, and what that taught us was like, you can't just wait around for these opportunities to come to you. Life is precious. And the people that you want to work with are not going to be here forever. So you have to go find them and you have to come up with things to do. You can't just wait for them to have a magic yeah. opportunity. Um, you know, what, what I wouldn't give to have been able to have another conversation with, with Tom to talk about X, Y, or Z, um, you know, just even like, I, I now would never have waited until day four to like, try to get introduced to him. I would have said, Hey, can, would you mind? I know this is crazy, but whenever you get a chance, can you just just for the sake of like, maybe I'll get to have another conversation. So um, yeah, 2017 was like the best year and in a lot of ways the worst year. And then, um, but we did, we did come back from it in 2018. We came back into the fold with journey and we did design all of the visuals for the tour uh, that they did and, and the, the visuals that they've been touring on since then. Um, oh, you have. That was oh, another really fun opportunity. Interesting. Yeah. How was that different than the first time that you work with them? Well, uh, it was mostly different because of the new technology that emerged. Um, there's a software pl- platform called Notch, which is a live real-time graphics processor. And what that allowed us to do was um, we actually worked with a motion designer uh, and 3D animator here in Wilmington, um, Adam Cruz, who's the brother of the founder of House Industries, Andy Cruz. Mm-hmm. Um we worked together to bring a couple of their classic album covers to life as 3d scenes that were rendered in real time. Um, so basically, you know, we built this little 3d world, um, with the covers from frontiers and, uh, raised on radio. Uh, and those scenes were being dynamically generated in real time from the server. So we were able to, you know, not only have these really cool visuals that were, um, you know, fully animated, but rather than those being like flat, video files that were playing back from a server um 
because they were being dynamically generated, we could actually incorporate the iMag footage directly into it. So for example, um, for the visual that we did with the Raised on Radio album cover, uh, it's this you know kind of a shot of uh, a radio station out in the middle of the desert. We were able to fly a camera through the scene and actually project the band performing in real time on the wall inside of the 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 radio station model for example so it was a really unique technology to get a chance to play around with and um you know it it was another interesting challenge um yeah i mean that raises a question that i had just about 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 creativity in general i mean you're you're how much are you limited like you go into a scene you talk to the band you get a feel for what they want to do clearly you're a magnificent idea person. You've got all these ideas in your head. And I don't think I'm projecting by saying that clearly, you've got a lot of ideas in your head. How much is it a fight with yourself, your own creative mind and limitations of technology to do exactly what you want to do? And are you frustrated with it or sometimes, or are you feeling that you have technology and you've got your arms around these things so that you can almost do what's in your fucking head. Yeah, well I mean that's that's a really really good question. So there's three variables that we were kind of, kind of always struggling with with this. Time and budget are the two obvious ones. Yeah. Um but the third one is like with the band involvement as well too. And and you know, even just like in working with whoever our point person would be, the lighting designer, the technical director you've got differences of opinions as far as what works and what doesn't work with the content getting shot down. <laughs> There's yeah. that footnote, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, the, the petty tour would not have been the success that it was without Tom's buy-in and, and Stan's buy-in. And, and they really gave us carte blanche with a lot of that. They gave us ideas and feedback, but for the most part, they let us do whatever we damn well pleased that made sense for it. And, you know, um, and that was great. Yeah. Um, I think working with working with other artists, um, and, and I think Journey falls into this situation as well too. When you've been a band for uh, like almost fifty years, uh, as as they have in various formats, um, you kind of sometimes it's hard to sort of lose keep keep a, a finger on the pulse of of what the identity even really is at that point in time. So you know you want to change certain things, you want certain things to stay the same, you want to try new, but you don't want new. Um, and, and when you've got multiple people in the band that have different opinions, as far as what that's going to be like, it's, it's constantly a challenge. Um, you know, it's the same, just like every technical aspect of the show deals with for sure. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, you're sort of in, you got to kind of get inside everybody's head so that you can present visuals that on the one hand you think are, you know, are are a great representation of what you can do. They have to be accepted by the band. They've got to reflect what's up on the, what the, what song they're playing. If we're talking about a live environment, Um, do you have to like the band and do you have to like the music? You know, I mean, you definitely have to wrap your brain around it. You have to spend time. That's different though. Know it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, we've worked with a lot of artists where, you know, I hesitate to say that you have to, but I think that you, you, you will, you will wind up doing it because you will appreciate, you'll appreciate 
the artistry that's there, regardless of whether or not it's music you would listen to elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of like my friends that have directed political spots and maybe not agree with the, the person that they're dealing with. You have to get to the heart of the matter with whatever it is. Maybe that's a bad example because politics and art are two completely separate things in a lot yeah. of ways. Top of but the I'll mind, these days, George. Um, you know, the, <laughs> I know. Uh, but no, what I will say, the challenge that we had with the journey tour um, was was just like going back to the well again creatively. We found ourselves, you know, hitting a lot of roadblocks just because like we'd done a lot of things before, tried things. And, you know, I think we were both really depressed coming off of what had happened with Petty. Um, but we muscled through it. You know, we spent, we went out and, and did pre visualizations with, with Kevin Christopher, with, uh, with Deuce out in, uh, in California for a couple of weeks before tour rehearsal started. And we gave ourselves plenty of time. And even still, we were like coming up with concepts a month later when we were sitting in tour rehearsals with the yeah. band in, in Jersey. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's always challenging, but the thing about it is at the end of the day, it comes together and it works out. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, it, the funny thing is we were gearing up to do a whole new round of content with journey this year, um, prior to, um, the tour getting canceled. And, you know, I, I don't know who knows at this point in time, what the future of, of touring, if they're even going to keep doing it at this point, right. there's, it's that some artists like that, you know, you never know. Um, but I think the thing that we've kind of found this year and, and where I've crossed over at this point, um, in in march um when all of these projects were kind of drying up we were saying like what on earth are we gonna do to work with musicians this year let let me let me dovetail that into covid because that's why we're talking in this digital box but like how are you uh what are you working on these days and how are you putting all your amazing creativity to use uh i know you said you're doing the biden inauguration but what about in the music world live streams visuals for all that kind of stuff like what's your world looking like uh today so really briefly there's there's sort of three things that have cropped up now one of the things that we did um, we, we kind of did in between the two is I, I worked with one of our favorite artists, uh, this band called the Matson two. Um, we did a music video with Mattson them, two. uh, probably two years ago, Matson M A T T S O N. They're twin brothers uh-huh. that one plays guitar, one plays drums, uh, surf psychedelic rock, uh, from San Diego. Uh, they're cool. just the coolest people on the planet. Uh, we did a full length album visual um for them in 2018 when they did um a, uh, they did a full album cover of uh John Coltrane's A Love Supreme and we did uh, an abstract visual that went along with the whole thing and we had sent that around to just And that's for presentation what format? Well, it was actually kind of a, a low budget version of what we did with with a lot of these touring bands. You know, they basically they would take we gave them the visual on a, a thumb drive and they would just go to venues across the country. And if they had a projection screen, they would project it up and they would play along with it. Oh, um, interesting. You know, it was, okay. it was a very low rent version of the same concept, right. but then we also released a companion, um, you know, companion music videos with the songs, with the visuals playing over them and whatnot. But, mm-hmm. um, I, I just on a whim had sent that to a friend of mine that was working in the industry. And, uh, he said, Hey, I don't know about animation, but, you do design like you should talk to my friend Ahmed. Um, and uh, the person he was talking about was Ahmed Galma, uh, Ahmed Galab, who is, um, uh, performs as Sinkane. Um, and Sinkane had started a Patreon at the moment. So what I wound mm-hmm. up doing throughout the spring and summer with him was every week we did 
two new designs. One was an album cover and one was a live stream set graphic. And, you know, we explored all of our mutual interests in like import records from Africa and Europe and East Asia. Um, you know, uh, old concert posters from like early rap and hip hop events in New York city, uh, Jamaican, uh, dance hall posters and hand painted signs. We explored all of these mutual design inspiration, uh, areas that, that we shared, uh, on a really interesting little body of work just to promote um, what he was doing to kind of keep the lights on in that moment. And in parallel to that, on the video side, um, I started working with some old friends of ours, um, the band Loka Kani here in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, I had done, I mean, I should also mention I'm a musician as well. Um, I played in a garage rock band called Scantron for uh, about almost eight years now. Yeah. Okay. You've got to tell me the inspiration for the name, the, the inspiration for the name Scantron. Scantron. Uh, it was not mine to take credit for. But, um, like I, I've been, I've had the good fortune of not having to think about taking a Scantron test for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, my, our lead <laughs> singer and songwriter, his father was an English teacher or I guess, sorry, an elementary school teacher. And for some reason, when they were thinking up band names, Scantron was where they went to. It's really funny for us because when we play shows around here, people think our name is Scranton because we're cl- so close to Scranton oh, that's and funny. that gets really confusing for people. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I had been playing in bands with the musicians that were, were touring as members of Loka Kani and Adam, the front person of the band and I became, uh, became friends and we worked on some video projects and design projects over the years. I designed flyers for some of their shows and, and, um, you know, Loka Kani is, is this really iconic Philadelphia, uh, you know, scrappy band that uh, has gained the attention of a lot of big critics, everyone from NPR to Sound Opinions to mm-hmm. President Obama put one of their songs in the summer playlist a few yeah, years back. Um, so, and last year they played over a hundred shows on the road. Um, they did some really, really remarkable growth, um, and had put together an awesome record that was slated to come out this year, but obviously that wasn't going to happen. Um, not in the way that they had planned. So in March, Adam and the guitarist, Will, um, who I was in Scantron with for many years, um, just played this little live stream set, um, just on somebody's phone um on facebook and instagram and it garnered like fifty thousand views over the course of a few weeks um and they just said let's just start doing this regularly and see what happens um and about eight weeks seven weeks into doing that two shows a week um, adam reached out to me about producing the show and coming on board to add graphics and some other stuff to kind of up the production value. Uh, and tomorrow night we're actually taping our 69th show, uh, live. We're doing a a new year's Eve broadcast. Um, that's, uh, going to be free on Facebook and Instagram, uh, free Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. Um, and then we've also built a Patreon for that as well, where we do four special events a month. Um, we've done two shows socially distanced outdoors at this point in time, uh, one in, in sort of central Pennsylvania, the other in, uh, on a, a block party down in Virginia. It's been a, re- it's been a really, really interesting road. When are the outdoor ones scheduled to be? Those, those happened, uh, earlier oh, this year. They already happened. Um, okay. Happened, okay. Yeah. So it, but I mean, over the course of the year, you know, we've created over 70 hours of broadcasting out of a, a spare bedroom in South Philly. So, uh, it's, it was not the work I was expecting to be doing this year. What have you been doing in terms of visuals for them? Church? 
just we actually just built like some broadcast graphics. I mostly just run the show and make sure that the whole thing doesn't fall apart on a nightly basis. Um, mm-hmm. You know, up until a few weeks ago, we were shooting the thing entirely on using smartphones um, and just plugging them into computers. And uh, we now have a very basic camera set up for them. Uh, this week, we're making the jump to eight channel individual audio capture so that we can do professional audio recording of all the shows as well, too. Up to this point, right. it's just been two channel audio. So it's a pretty surreal, you know, scrappy experience that's growing. Um, and there's a lot of big things to come. I mean, the, the thing that has happened this year with artists like Adam is those that have found a way to make live streaming and, and services like Patreon where they can really directly connect with their fans. Amazingly enough, this weird little endeavor has brought people a lot of bliss and hope. And, um, you know, brought people Mm -hmm. together in a time where we've never been more isolated. And, you know, it's been really amazing that the band has stayed afloat through this um, and, you know, are in a lot of ways better off than they would have been. I mean, the margins for touring as an independent band at the mid-level, it's really challenging. It costs a lot of money to put a seven-piece band on the road. So this has been a year for them to kind of reset. And I think the most important part of this thing you know, if you look at bands like uh, Fish is a great example, and there's a lot in the jam band space that understand that they have fans that if they can see every show that the band plays, they will happily pay for that privilege or, you know, and, and I think that this is where you're starting to see bands outside of that genre that are going to understand that if, if you have a, a ravenous fan base and you give them the opportunity to support you, uh, and if it's in all possible to see every single show, um, they'll do it. So, you know, we're kind of looking at, you know, as whenever things kind of go back to the new normal that we're getting to with, with touring, um, the plan is just to continue doing some form of these live streams on the regular into the future and to offer the ability, um, you know, we're, we're building a rig that can go out on the road with these guys and, uh, and hopefully with the gold thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I've talked to people on the show from uh, Noon Chorus streaming service to just yesterday, I was talking to a promoter from upstate New York, uh, Dan Smalls with uh, Dan Smalls Productions. And, you know, so sort of understand a little bit about how streaming is going to affect promoters. Um, He's like, well, people outside of the three three hour by car radius aren't going to come to shows anyway. So, uh, yeah, so let's, let's, let's stream. Let's yeah. stream those shows and get it out to everybody that, that that's interested in seeing the shows. And um, of course, um, Andrew mm-hmm. Jensen at Noon Chorus is uh, utter proponent of it. Um, yeah, yeah, but streaming has changed how we're looking at music going forward. You know, how are you involved exactly with Lone Cut, Cut Connie, and where do you? Uh, how do you see that evolving? So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I produced the show. Um, we've, we, I produced the, um, tough cookies broadcast, which is the, the weekly free show on Facebook. We also do, um, an extra couple of those every month that are private just for the Patreon fans. Um, uh, and then I also produce some other content for them. We do virtual meet and greets, um, with, with Adam, um, from the band, um, using a service mm-hmm. called crowdcast. Um, and then, um, I also produce the interviews for the show. So Adam has done about three dozen or so interviews at this point in time, you know, ranging from, uh, we just did Nick Hornby last week. Uh, prior to that, um, we've talked to Darlene Love, to Dion, um, to Beyonce Knowles' dad, Matt, Matthew Knowles, uh, who's the brainchild behind, uh, Destiny's Child and, and a ton of other incredible things. 
Um, and you know, it's, it's probably going to wind up becoming a podcast in 2021 as well, which is exciting. Um, but you know, oh, that's another big part of the show. So, so that's been kind of my daily operations with them. Um, I also designed a couple t-shirts for them this year. Um, and you know, it's just cool. it's scrappy. But the, the other point, as you mentioned, yeah. streaming shows, uh, we did also, we have a partnership with Arden, uh, Guild Hall, um, and Arden Concert Guild down in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, it's a historic mm-hmm. uh, barn that was turned into a, a music venue and live events venue um, a number of years back. And um, I've been designing concert posters for them for almost 10 years now. And uh, this year we helped them to install uh, a proper streaming rig. And in September, we did our first virtual ticketed show. Uh, we did David Bromberg's 75th birthday party um, live at the hall. Oh, yeah. Uh, we did it with seven that. cameras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. We did a we sold over a thousand tickets, which was unbelievable. Uh, it wow. was way beyond yeah. our expectations for what the event was going to be. And, uh, that's led to, I had already been, um, I filmed a short documentary with David a few years ago, um, about his violin collection. And we're hoping to expand that into a much larger project this year. Um, we're working, you know, it, it, the doing a, a totally independent, um, live stream like that was a real head trip. Um, I, I literally, in addition to designing the ad mats for the show, designing the t-shirts for the show, um, producing the event, coordinating the entire production. I also built the ticketing mm-hmm. platform, uh, customized that for the venue. <laughs> um, you know, and my brother, wow. uh, did the actual live cut of the show, which was pretty crazy. So it, you know, it's, it's been a really, as I mentioned, it's not like, well, we just do this one particular thing really well. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, we're these weird little jack of all trades that, you know, we'll just, we'll just grasp at whatever we can to do something interesting. So it's amazing how many opportunities have opened up for those that are in, in this industry, but have had to kind of change the way that they're looking at what, their strengths are and how to play to the strengths within an, in, in a time that sucks kind of for everybody, but everyone's trying to figure it out. And, um, you seem to be doing a great job. And do you see these, um, how do you see streaming going forward? I mean, and, and do you see, um, the skills that you've learned and the different kinds of techniques that you've learned? Um, do you see using that in a, in a tour visuals capacity at some point? Well, the funny thing about the tour visuals side and, and sort of the animation and production that goes into those, um, you know, whether or not that returns in as big of a way, I mean, I, I think it will. Um, but what we haven't really talked about that we're about to delve into much deeper is we're really mm-hmm. focusing in on post-production work for some uh, some music-related documentaries right now, which is kind of using the same energy of let's take some archival bits, let's make some new things and let's help to tell a story. Um, you know, um, film has been a medium that we do a lot of cinematography work um, outside of the music business, done a little bit in it. But um, the documentary piece is, is particularly interesting to us because much like the tour visuals, you get to play a, as, as kind of being the glue that holds one of those productions together between all the talking heads and any verite that you might have, um, you know, kind of filling the gaps and, and, and helping to bring in a lot of cases, either a posthumous person back, uh, into the fold or, you know, helping to tell some, you know, illustrate some stories that people might be telling. Um, you know, that's another way I think that we're going to, um, be able to put our skills to work. And, um, I can't talk yet about some of the projects, but there's some higher profile, uh, music docs that I think you'll be seeing, um, are, 
our name in the credits of in the next couple of years here. So here's to hoping for that for sure. Yeah, it's a tough time. It's a very strange and tough time for sure. And, and when I say it's a tough time, the, the, the point of that is, um, you know, we've lived through a lot of lean years here. Um, we know what, what it takes to keep our little team going. Um, we have turned down a lot of opportunities to do things that would have taken us into a direction that I don't think, you know, we would have been too committed to one thing or another, uh, to have been able to weather this year, the way that we did. Um, you know, I, I, my goal for what 2021 looks like is really taking stock of, the things that we've been able to do well um, and the things that we feel like we could do better and, you know, hopefully use our, the same duct tape and chewing gum that we've been able to hold ourselves through these first 10 years of business um, to kind of future proof ourselves for the next 10 or 20 or whatever we might do. Um, But yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there a satisfaction level that's like, obviously if you're doing visuals for a stadium show, Mm -hmm. whether it's for journey or it's for petty, there's something when there's 60,000 people that are cheering and you imagine that it's because of your visuals uniquely, but, um, I mean, but then you're, you're actually this year, you've been working and doing these streaming, uh, yeah. the, the low cut Connie shows. It's still sort of, you know, you're working, you're, you're, you're doing what you do. Yeah. Is there kind of a difference to you that, it's one or the other, or are you missing one part of what was occurring before? Because you're not a performer, you're not on the stage performing, but you're still kind of, there's, there's a need for what you do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, as a musician, I think I miss, I I miss that part of, of things a lot more than I miss um, getting to see our work out there in the world. Um, and the interesting thing I got to say, I mean, you know, I'm talking about you as not as a musician, but as a visual artist. Oh, dude, totally. But my point is like, uh, the, the, the interesting thing about it is like, it, yeah, I mean, it, it is really nice to see, uh, your work on that kind of stage, but at the same time, you know, we're the feedback that we're getting even on our, you know, I get a lot of, I see the, the feedback that Loka Connie's fans are giving to the fact that this production is there and that it's filling this void for them in such a challenging time. And, you know, uh, when we did the David Bromberg show, being able to safely produce um, the first time that that band had a chance to get together in six months and probably the last time that they would be able to get together for another six months or longer. You know, it's uh, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of emotional payoffs this year in in its own way. Um, It's just different, you know. Yeah. And I I think the tricky part of this is you can't take any can't take anything for granted. You know, I mean, I maybe we'll never land another show that's as high profile as what we got with, with Petty's 40th tour. But first off, you know, it's, that's just the way it, the cookie crumbles sometimes. And, and, you know, whether we're doing yeah. visuals that are getting seen by hundreds of thousands of people or, you know, we're making stuff for ourselves in our basement um, at the end of the day, it's just about being able to get to do what we love for a living and to work with our friends. And, and in, in the best case scenario, if you can um, keep your friends' lights on and collaborate with people that you have always wanted to work with and just really focus on bringing good into the world rather than, you know, uh, slinging, I don't know, hamburgers or, uh, you know, trying to hawk shit that uh, no one really needs, um, you know, it's a good day. I mean, that's, that's we, we don't, we're, trust me, we're not above uh, commercialism. We're we're certainly all about. At the end of the day, we have to. You're not above. You're not above hawking shit. 
No, I mean we sell a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> I, I tell you one thing. Sometimes you I, have to. I did that. Uh, this is this is one of those like you get to the end of the year and you start to think about your goals from last year and what you accomplished. I did set out at the beginning of this year. I hadn't ever really, I've designed t-shirts here and there over the years, but um, I said to myself in January, not knowing what this year was going to be like, um, I kind of really want to get like, I want to make some t-shirts this year that sell. And uh, I got to say, this is, uh, I, this year I've designed at least four shirts that have sold, uh, more than a few dozen units, which is is pretty remarkable for somebody that like nice honestly, for what I band? Is it for, is it for a band or are they just like designs? I designed no, I mean I did it, for bands. I mean design work for hire. Uh, yeah. It's just I've done a lot of album covers and and things like that. But t shirts had always been area where I just I feel like I had constantly been missing the mark. And and this year uh, I did a we did a shirt for David Bromberg's seventy fifth that uh, was an I wasn't there shirt. I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, we sold about a hundred or so of those. Uh, and then I designed two shirts with, uh, with Loka Connie this year. Uh, one of which was, uh, they're both based around, uh, catchphrases from the show. Uh, one of which, uh, was, uh, Adam commonly says, I'm schwitzen, I'm schwitzen for you. Uh, so we did a schwitzen for you <laughs> shirt. And then the other one, uh, ironically was, uh, another, uh, sort of Hebrew leaning shirt that says, uh, mazel tov, motherfuckers. Yeah. And the, uh, the asterisk <laughs> in, in fucker is, uh, the star of David. So, uh, and I should also mention, oh, that's funny, I, man. I need, I think uh, I need that. I need that shirt by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's a really, man, it's a cathartic experience to, to be, be around that energy. But, um, you know, I, I, like I said, yeah, it was just a yeah. fun thing to get a chance to strangely in a year where there's almost uh, no real live shows, um, sling some merch. So, um, anyway, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's some definite positive takeaways from this year and, um, you know, there has to be, I mean, life goes on, you got to do what you got to do. And, you know, there's just, it's a really, really difficult situation. I've talked to a lot of performers that are just super frustrated that, um, they're not in front of fans, but you kind of are, you know, and you find ways to do it and you find ways to make it happen. And Hey, I wouldn't even have I started to produce this podcast and put together this podcast with the help of others during COVID. So, you know, it's, you do, you're sort of propelled in a direction and, you know, you can't stop what's happening in the world outside and you pivot and you, and you do, you do what's absolute best with what you've got. Yeah, that's the truth, man. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, right. we'll be having a much different conversation the next time we talk here, uh, you know, as things kind of come back online. You know, I think the, the good yeah. news is um, the, the performing arts and, and live music in general. Um, you know, obviously we're going to, we're going to lose some venues. We're going to lose um, a lot of revenue, but at the end of the day, we're not going to lose the, the passion. I think if anything, you're going to see people. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. You know, I, I was commonly the kind of person that would drive, a few hours to go see a show if I really wanted to see it. I think I'm never oh, going to yeah. think twice again at this point in time about going to see a show because I mean, I, there's nothing that I wouldn't give on any given night this week to be hopping in a car to drive five hours to go see <laughs> whatever. Uh, we'll yeah. get back to that, man. But, um, but George, thanks a lot for spending the time. You've done some amazing stuff in the visuals area and just everything that you've done. And I, you're, you're, you, I really enjoyed hearing your story and I appreciate you sharing everything with me. 
Well, th Josh, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope, like I said, hopefully the next time we talk, we'll be uh, singing about the virtues of uh, a post-pandemic world. Yeah, absolutely, man. I sure hope so. We're going to get back to it uh, soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Take care. Okay, that was George Murphy. Um, so cool to hear about his uh, his stories with uh, with Journey and Tom Petty and how that developed. Um, just such amazing stuff. Uh, and um, it was also really cool uh, for me personally to like hear about uh, how he was hanging out in an area like a mile away from where I grew up in this old school hotel, the Sportsman's Lodge, which is part of Tom Petty lore. Um, but... Uh, God, um, George has got such a great attitude and the stuff that he's done and um, during this pandemic period uh, with Low Cut Connie and uh, the visuals there and producing the live show and uh, just all this great stuff that he's that, that he's done. He's got such a great attitude and he's just got his hands in so many different things at the same time. I'm super impressed with it, um, and uh, I know that that, that show has been, uh, been super successful, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next thing that, that George is going to be involved in. Guaranteed, it's going to be something really cool and clean and uh, interesting. I mean, his graphics and his uh, visual sense are, uh, are, really, um, are really super top-notch and really aesthetically amazing. So uh, keep an eye out for George. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of road case. And uh, I want to thank George again for taking the time to be here and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of road case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And if you are able to and like to support Roadcase, we have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road.